Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is uh, Stephen Payden, who is an assistant professor at Rikyo University and someone whose voice you may recognize from one of my interviews that I did at the recent JALT podcast. Very nice to speak to you again today, Stephen. Yeah, thanks, Chris, and uh, thanks for inviting me. It was great to meet you at Jolt, by the way. Did you enjoy it? Um, I did, and, and very uh, thank you very much for in for doing the interview there. Yours was a, a poster presentation, which I, I think I mentioned to you at the time. I think they did a really good job this year of um, putting the posters right outside the place where you're doing the registration, where you're getting all the information. It's the first thing that you hit, because sometimes they're often a room somewhere else on a, on a different floor and you, you have to go and find them but they were right there outside the exhibition booth so um mm. well basically my first question for you is related to that how was the uh, how was the experience and the, the reception that you got at JALT this year yeah it was good uh we uh we were pretty confident with what we had there and uh it was just you know really just a bit of socializing a bit of fun and talk about what we were studying so yeah it was good went well no there were there weren't that many people that came around to talk to us but the people that did chat were uh, we really engaged them and had a lot of fun it was good yeah i felt that by by seeing it. i thought you're and we can talk about this a little bit later as well when we get into the philosophy of presentation design maybe but i thought yours for a poster presentation and we talked about it at the time that i thought was really well thought out eye-catching um, you know, kind of drew people in to ask questions about what you were talking about. Yeah, that's, than... uh, yeah. I, if I remember correctly, we have similar ideas about visual design and uh, delivering a, delivering a message by presentation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we'll 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 get uh, into that a little bit later, and and just generally, how was Fukuoka, my my adopted hometown? How did it? How did it well, treat you? <laughs> your adopted hometown? Are you are you based in Fukuoka? Yes. Really? Mm. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I, I love Fukuoka. Um, the I had the best ramen down there that I've ever had. Oh, and yes. I've, I've been in Japan for like, I don't know, what, 23 years or something. Man, that, that Shinshin ramen. Mm. Oh, my God. Have you had that? Is that famous down there? Uh, well, the most famous is tonkotsu ramen, which is kind of like pork broth. Uh, this was, I'm pretty sure this was a chicken-based broth, but oh, it was good. A final question on the culinary delights of Fukuoka. Did you do this in a restaurant or was it in, in the yatai, in, the, in, the, in this kind of street? In a, in a restaurant, actually. Uh, it was in, I can't remember the name of it, but one of those shopping center places where you go down into the basement. Mm. Not, not a, you know, I don't usually hang out in those kind of places. It's not where I expect the best cuisine to be, but Shinshin Ramen, man. <laughs> That place was very popular uh, among my group of friends. It was very okay. good. Okay, well, you've heard it here first. Uh, uh, a recommendation from uh, Stephen Payden, Shinshin yep. Ramen in Fukuoka. Please come down and enjoy. Yep. So the paper that we're going to be talking about is Keeping the Aged Engaged, a right. Quantitative Study of Lifelong Learning. Um, and my first question directly related to the paper uh, the study that you talk about relies a great deal on self-determination theory for your framework there's something yep. might be familiar to other applied linguists like yourself but for those who don't know much about SDT could you 
outline the key points of this? Yeah, you, you got the acronym down there. Are you familiar with SDT? Uh, yes, um, I. it was part of my uh, master's degree as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I find uh, people who are aware of self-determination theory are, are usually big fans. You either you know it or you don't. Okay, so oh, where do we start? All right, so self-determination theory. Okay, it's a theory about human motivation. Um, it's based on three psychological needs, which when uh, mostly satisfied lead to well-being and human motivation. Okay, so uh, what are they there? Autonomy, uh, competency, and relatedness. So autonomy as in being in control of your own destiny. Competency as in being good at whatever it is you're doing, you know, having that satisfaction of being uh, able. And uh, relatedness as in being social, socially connected. So I found that this theory applies really well to the classroom, especially to uh, a group of senior citizens, which is what that paper is based on. And um, it's also, it also works really well as a framework to analyze why a class is successful. Hmm. The reason why I, I remember self-determination theory is because even at the time I felt that it explained a lot about human activities outside of just language learning. If you yeah, feel you that can... you're getting valuable returns in terms of you know having that kind of uh, control of what you're doing, that you're good at what you're doing, yeah. and it's connected yeah. to what you want to learn my yeah my study in research has mostly been about groups developing groups and i find that you know self-determination theory is really helpful in in group development no matter what the group whether it's teaching whether whatever the group is a, a team uh, a, a group of business people self-determination theory is just very very helpful i think hmm. Outside of a few interviews that we've done with people who have had lifelong connections with various communities of people, mm. um, we haven't spoken much about the concept of lifelong learning and also teaching older learners. Mm. Um, mm. Quite uh, different. It is. Uh, is there something that, that drew you to this? Was it the circumstance that you found yourself in while you were teaching or was that something that you had done in the past that kind of drew you into um, wanting to provide this kind of class framework? No, I really fell into it, to be quite honest. I was, uh, you know, I started teaching these guys about 20 years ago and I was just building a schedule at the time. I, I started at a new university and uh, I was asking about extra classes to fill my schedule. And I was given these uh, like a uh like they're at like a community center it's a it's called a lifelong learning center where they offer classes to people in the community and two of those classes were english classes and so yeah i just started teaching that but um i got i got hooked i mean they're, they're lovely people they mm. become like family and um you know you you need to measure success a little bit different with these kind of classes because they're continuous, you know, like at university, 
we get basically a fresh new group of students every semester, right? And so, you know, whether you're successful with the class or not, it doesn't matter because you 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 get to, um, you know, recharge with a new set of students. Mm -hmm. But these guys, it's the same students all the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my feeling of competency, maybe, or, or my feeling of success as a teacher is based on those students being happy enough to come back to the class all the time. So, you know, it's been challenging in, in keeping them engaged. And um, that's, uh, that's one benefit of self-determination theory, understanding the class through the lens of, you know, uh, satisfying their need for autonomy, satisfying their need for competency and their need for social engagement has been really helpful to keep them engaged. Mm. Well, you, you note in um, the overview in your paper that lifelong learning was something that is directly connected back to the result of the Second World War and wanting to make sure that um, everyone had um, the ability to improve themselves through public education and, and you know these edu kind of educational courses yeah. and this is something that I'm personally related to because my mother was uh in lifelong learning as an educator oh really uh, uh, up until her retirement and then because of the benefits that she saw in her more elderly learners she immediately re-enrolled in a whole mm -hmm. bunch of courses like art uh latin um mm. uh, actually, so, so she enrolled as a student yes so she came oh, back right. re-enrolled as a student uh, you know uh, even japanese uh, because you know she wanted to connect with my life here in japan right, and right. so it when these kind of things come up it was a, a subject that appealed personally uh to me so could you give us some uh background to the, the study that you that you undertook um and how you were attempting to measure these oh, yep. things with your work yeah okay so i've been teaching these same two classes of senior students for uh at the time of the study i think it was 16 or 17 years so anyway uh for for a long time and so they've been really successful classes uh and, and i gauge that success on the fact that they keep coming back mm -hmm. so um i wanted to analyze what made them successful and so i set up the study around self-determination theory as a framework and we measured uh how giving them autonomy keeps them engaged uh how letting them feel competency and how keeping them socially connected also satisfies these needs. So we, we analyze the class or the success of the class through those three needs. And um, it turns out that uh, in the end, the most important thing was that they got that need for relatedness satisfied. I think that's the key. If you can get them, you know, socially engaged together, not just in small groups, but the whole class, all engaged, mm. all, you know, developing that cohesion through every member in the group then i think that's a key thing so that that's for the social engagement if you we look at autonomy i keep them i keep their autonomy satisfied by letting them can control the course like 
the classes follow uh, a similar semester pattern to my normal university courses. At the beginning of each new semester, I ask the students, okay, you know, what topics do you want to study? Or what topics do you want to discuss? And we, we make a list on the board. And then they all vote for the topics that they want. And then I, you know, I develop each class around that topic. I'll, you know, throw in some grammar patterns or whatever that their needs are at the time. So by getting them to choose the topics, they feel they're in, in charge of the content. So they're getting that autonomy satisfied. And then with competency, it, it's just a, um, it's a balancing act. It's just getting them to feel successful in the language that they're using. So, you know, not making it too difficult for them, not making it too easy, just giving them that, that little bit of a challenge. And, but also the opportunity for a lot of repetition and using the, the same target structures in different ways so that they're, they're feeling success with the language. Um, from a methodology standpoint, this is something that's kind of just, that's just come to me. I always have done research with uh, university age students. Mm. And of course, ethically, you have to give them the right to opt in and opt out and then even yep. opt out uh, later on. But you don't really have to outline or usually you don't outline to the students exactly what the questions are asking them. So in the framework of social, uh, sorry, self-determination um, theory, when, you know, you've got these three things that you're attempting to measure, mm. working with people who are more mature, have gone through life, who, who kind of understand how these things work more from a, you know, even from a professional basis where they may have had to do these things uh, in their own work in the past. Um, were you able to explain to them what you were doing and why you were doing it more than you might do with younger research participants? Well, uh, I have explained self-determination theory and whenever I've done any research with these guys, I've usually presented the results to them also. Mm -hmm. I, I'm just, I'm not sure that they really care <laughs> to be quite honest, but I, I do go over it with them. Um, I, I told them, I've told them numerous times, you know, why we're doing research. And, uh, you know, I always try and make them feel good about themselves, like uh, pointing out how great this class is. And I want to research why it's so great. It would appear to me that maybe working with people who have been through, you know, an entire professional life and have had, you know, tasks that they had to do. Uh, that they would understand that given this is part of your professional life and wanting to assist you, that they that you wouldn't have to hide in any way what the questions were about and they would feel more likely to just give uh, honest responses rather than, you know, the, the surveys that might be given to 18-year-old university students. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think what you're touching on is a point that these senior students, they're not there for credit. They're there because they want to be there. Right. And so there's not that pressure on them. Like, you know, they don't have to come. So that's that's another reason why I need to keep them engaged. I need to keep them wanting to come back rather than, you know, th them having to come back. They're, they're not there for that reason. In fact, I, I remember I, maybe when I was about five years into it, 
the penny dropped and I realized that, you know, these guys, this is not, they're not really here to learn. They're really here as a hobby. They've got other needs. Mm. And then from that, uh, somewhere somewhere after that, my thinking developed along the lines of self-determination theory and recognizing those three needs. And as long as I'm satisfying those three needs, then uh, they're all happy, basically. Well, you, you said something, and, and while you were talking, I was writing down some notes to ask you another question. And I, and I wrote down the word engagement, and then you said mm. engage. Mm. And I remember that when we were talking at your poster presentation, you showed me that they have a lot of active engagement, even while we were talking, um, using the Line app. That, oh, yes. Right. So is engagement something else? Is, is that like another part of this? I mean, relatedness, competence, autonomy, and engagement, like long-term engagement? I see engagement as being the relatedness need. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, if you look back at the history of lifelong learning in Japan, I think one of the aims of lifelong learning is to keep them engaged in society. I, I see engagement as the relatedness part of self-determination theory. How much do you engage with students outside of class? You, you said to me that you know they, they feel like family, and you related to me some um, you know people who have uh, you know grown through these these classes, and you've known them for many many years how much do you engage with students outside of class time um and is that part of the as, as you say the community aspect that is part of lifelong learning yeah i try to keep it you know professional as much as possible and uh you know i'm a pretty busy guy anyway so i can't really afford to be going out with them too often but at the end of each semester we always go out together as a group like for an end of semester party. Um, recently, uh, one one of the a couple of the students in the groups are tour guides in Kamakura, and I've been promising for years to go on a tour with them. So I did that with them recently, and they were really happy about that. Just uh, the fact that they were able to get together after being isolated through COVID for some time, and and. Uh, yeah, they, they really enjoyed that little outing. Yeah, I don't socialize with them too much, but another great thing about it is that they're pretty autonomous. So they get they them organize themselves around group activities and stuff. So yeah, they, they don't really need me there. In fact, you know, I'm just a facilitator. I just I just, you know, get those relationships, building those relationships, getting cohesion developed throughout the group and then just let them go. They're, they're not reliant on me at all. And that's the way I've developed the groups. I don't want them to be reliant on me. So the two groups that are in the uh, study that you did were what you term the LL class, the lifelong learning class, and the HL class, the higher level class. Uh, yeah, there's a low level class and a high level class. What was your, apart from the survey, was there any treatment that you put into this? You know the difference in uh, the amount of Japanese that's used in the class. So for the low level would be 70-30 English to Japanese and the high level uh, 100% uh, English. Are there any other treatments that you do in these courses that make them different? No, I think they kind of stream themselves by having that that uh, course descriptor. 
then they choose, okay, do they want to go to a low-level class with more Japanese or do they want to go to the more challenging one? So, yeah, having those two descriptors kind of automatically streams them. And could you give us a kind of an overview of the findings that you had and uh, if any ways that you adapted the courses based on the findings? Yeah, it's been a kind of, you know, how you get those PDA cycles, like mm -hmm. you, you, you research something, you make a plan, you put it into action, then you, you know, you, you uh, reflect on it. It's mm -hmm. kind of been a little bit of a process like that. So, uh, yeah, first of all, just realizing it's a hobby for them. They're not there to pass any tests or achieve any great employment or anything like that. So... With the study that we presented at JOLT, we looked at um, how COVID affected them and getting these students to reconnect through line groups and then through uh, regular Zoom meetings. And what we found was that when they have these regular Zoom meetings, there's basically no English being spoken. Hmm. But the thing is, it doesn't matter. Because for these students, it's just a hobby. It's a chance for them to fulfill those social needs. So, you know, at the end of the day, even if they're not speaking English, it really doesn't matter because they're engaged. And mm. that's one of the main, not only one of the main uh, parts of self-determination theory, but it's one of the main aims of lifelong learning, mm. keeping them engaged. So would you say that um, those elements of SDT, so the relatedness competence, competence and autonomy uh, necessarily change over time. It's different from an 18, 19, 20-year-old student, what autonomy or relatedness means to them and someone in their 50s or 60s. Or do you think that there is a, there is a pattern that you can learn from one and apply to the other? Well, I always try to give my students autonomy. Hmm. And then in any class, whether whether it's uh, university level or senior level, I always want to make those connections in the class, getting everybody feeling uh, friendly in the class. So there's always that. And then competency, uh, I think all students at any level need to experience success with the language. So I'm always aware of self-determination theory and, and I use it as an approach to any class, I think. Mm. Yeah. Well, then let's talk a little bit more about the presentation that you put on in Fukuoka, because uh, as we uh, mentioned at the beginning, it was something that drew me in about the way that you created the presentation. It wasn't just a series of PowerPoint slides that had been printed out onto A4 sheets and then pinned to a board yeah um that you couldn't you couldn't understand what the content was from a distance yours had a very clear theme so can you can you walk us through well first yeah. of all what 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 was the study uh in relation to as you say in relation to the the, the covid break we had to take and uh, and that the presentation you gave right so when did covid hit it hit us in was it 2019 uh it was 2020 well it uh, depends on which medical journal you read, but in Japan, it uh, it affected us in terms of in terms of travel and shutting down education. It was basically, I think, March twenty twenty. Right. So it was that first semester when all classes were shut down. Is yes. That right? 
Yes. Okay, so with the senior students, they're a high risk group, right? Of course. Yeah, so their whole program was shut down. Yeah. Just completely shut down. And unlike university students, there, uh, there was, there, nobody saw a need to offer any alternative education for them. Plus, I think there are other challenges, like, like I found out, um, getting senior students online is a challenge because, you know, these people are, the, you know, the, the height of their technology was basically fax machines. Hmm. So first of all, getting them onto line was a bit of a challenge. Not too bad because most of them, you know, had a nephew or, or a daughter or something that would help them get online. So eventually we got uh, most of the students online. And then from there, we wanted to start regular Zoom sessions hmm. to, you know, keep them interacting on Zoom. And uh, that was quite a challenge. <laughs> We're still learning that. Uh, so we have regular Zoom sessions about once a month. I don't usually participate in them unless, unless I'm, I'm free. But yeah, they they organize themselves around these regular Zoom sessions. But yeah, it, it, it's pretty hard for them. They're not at the breakout room level yet, but you know, most of them are able to get themselves online. So if if you're not um, if you're not facilitating them, um, are they still working through some program of study? Do they have a shared textbook or online resource, or is it mostly community based? No, they just they just get together and chat, you know, uh, instead of being able to go down to an izakaya together, they, they just get on a Zoom once once a month. That's all it is. But, you know, they're engaged. And, and like I said before, they're not speaking English, but they're socializing. And really, at the end of the day, that's all that matters. With, with, with this whole transition from, you know, nothing to line to Zoom, the institution didn't have anything to do with that. That's just something we done. We did by ourselves. Once it became clear to me that the institution were not going to offer them anything, and not, you know we were, we were alone in this, then I gradually was able to get them together over the course of a couple of months to you know transition from nothing to line, and then to Zoom. But yeah, it, it's just it's just been us. There's been no support at all. Before the pandemic, what support did you receive from any institution that you're connected with? I mean, did you have? Uh, was it provided by you know local council resources yeah, was, or from the university? It, it was a lifelong pro, lifelong learning program supported by a, a university in Yokohama. Mm -hmm. It had been going for. Well, I'd been teaching there for about 18 years before the program was stopped. I mean, the, the whole program, everything, not just English classes, everything has been shut down for, what, two years now? And uh, mm. I haven't heard any news of them starting back up. So, you know, all those students in that area who were used to going to regular classes for whether it be English or Ikebana or, or whatever, there's nothing for them, nothing. Mm. So, you know, after a while, that kind of concerned me a little bit. And that's what prompted me to get them organized into groups, uh, online groups. Let's do some, uh, you know, future thinking, hopefully 
some positive thinking. Do you think these classes are ever going to come back in a in a organized sense? And what do you think they're going to look like if they do? Yeah, I hope so, but I really don't know. You know, I've got no mm. idea. In the meantime, we're just doing the best we can, but you know, hopefully they'll restart. On a you know, on an institutional level, there would have been a lot of people. Uh, laid off because the program was cancelled right so suddenly they wouldn't have had jobs so for the university to restart that whole program it would be a little bit daunting I think Mm. yeah so yeah I don't know I I, I hope they get it back off the ground but I I can see the challenges for them so it might start again in a a voluntary sense I mean uh, just on a personal level my wife is a uh, garden designer she's in, into horticulture and um she volunteers in a group that you know looks after local parks and oh yeah and that's something that had to be not to use a pun but cut back during what? the uh during covid but it's something that's slowly ramping up again but it's only through voluntary action it would have it would have completely died on the vine if it was only you're good with um, the metaphors there. Eh? Well, <laughs> uh, if it was only uh, that something that they were being paid for and that had a budget, yes, it, it's something that's concerning given the supposed importance that's been put on supporting senior citizens uh, in Japan, given the the aging population. Yeah. Before we move on to something else, I, I I have a final question about the course. If it does come back. Is there anything that that you would like to incorporate from this in terms of like a, a hybrid style, face to face use of line, Zoom, and people who are in a in the classroom at the same time to increase the amount of community participation? Do you have any ideas in that area? No, I, I'm one of those guys. It's all face to face, or it's all online. Mm-hmm. Not a mixture. It's just too complicated, and nah, no. Nah. If, yeah, no, we'll uh, hopefully we'll be able to get back face to face. But if not, we'll just continue with line and Zoom. It'll be okay. So I'm, I'm assuming from your answers that you do also teach university classes. Oh yes, that's my main gig. The, okay. the, these these lifelong learning students—they're just something I do on the side. The so, and mainly are these in the area of undergraduate or graduate students? Oh, my university—they're undergraduate. Yeah, um, all my courses are undergraduate. Yeah, I teach for um, it's called a School of Community Welfare. Well, I'm at Rikyo University near Tokyo. Do you do you find that there are kind of transferable skills? I mean, you your your background is in applied linguistics mm. and uh, obviously language teaching. Do you find that there were easily transferable skills from teaching university undergraduate level students and senior citizens, or was it a completely different uh set of methodologies communicative strategies that you had to implement in those classes yeah that's a good question that's a good question you know i think it took a little while for the penny to drop when i realized that hey you know these students they're not here for credit they're just here as a hobby it's just playtime for them when i realized that then my whole approach to the classes changed you know, make it fun for them. Hmm. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't have to be serious. Uh, if they don't learn, it doesn't matter, you know. As someone who has never taught 
older learners of language, what is fun for them? What are the activities? What engages them with the class content in a way that's different from university level learners? Yeah, so for number one, I would say relatedness. Get them connected. Get them uh, building friendships. Get them feeling comfortable with each other, trusting each other. Number two, autonomy. Let them choose the curriculum. Let them choose the topics. Let them talk about what they want to talk about. Let them tell you what they want to talk about. That, that's really enlightening. And yet competency. Um, let them experience success with the language. This is hmm. something that they, in traditional Japanese uh, English courses, they don't seem to me, they don't seem to experience enough success, you know, to get that confidence. So yeah, let them experience success. And you said you've been teaching for over 20 years. Have any of That's your just students... Japan. That's just Japan. A bit uh, in, than in, in Japan, but with this course has been going on for at least 20 years right with your 20 years life. about yeah. 20 well see it got cancelled two years ago with the when, when covid hit us mm -hmm. but uh you know I, I feel like i've continued it because we've we're doing zoom sessions now so were any of your students enthused enough engaged enough and felt competent enough to go abroad and use their language skills take a vacation in an english speaking country do you have any um, success stories in that area? Oh, yeah. Well, there was one lady that uh, went on the peace ship. Peace boat? Peace boat. Is that what mm -hmm. it's called? Peace boat, mm -hmm. yeah. She went on that. And, yeah, some of them have been here and there. But mostly, Chris, these are people who have traveled the world, who have worked abroad, who, you know, are basically at their end of their life, like they're in the twilight of their life. Mm -hmm. They don't really have such great ideals that much they're more interested in you know watching their grandkids grow up mm -hmm. that sort of thing keeping their brain engaged that's another big reason why they come just to keep that what, what do you call it you know just keeping your brain engaged so that you don't fall into dementia or something that's another big motivator for them coming to class yeah like i said uh, one of my as i said in my life one of my connections to lifelong knowing is uh my mom and she is 75 this year she's, and she's the perfect age to join one of my classes i'll put her in touch yeah. the uh actually you know <laughs> i'm only half half joking here when i say you know she's welcome to join our zoom sessions she would love to oh they they would love to meet her in fact i've got a friend in uh in australia who's at retirement age i think he's about 68 if i remember correctly so I've um, got regular Zoom sessions with him going also, where my students mm. talk to him in Australia. But hey, you, your mum's more than welcome to join any time, buddy. I'll, I'll, well, I'll, I'll talk to her about it because we actually had a, a, a weekly call this week. Mm. And I mentioned that uh, two things were happening this week that I was uh, very happy about. It was my first group of uh, teaching fellows at this university, which is kind of an upper level of teaching assistant graduate mm. uh, students who we want to encourage to stay on as future faculty. Mm -hmm. So teaching them to be 
higher level classroom assistants taking on you know oh. you know 20 25 of the class work all right that um, sounds interesting to, to kind of infuse them in that way um but also the possibility of speaking with you on the topic of lifelong learning which as i said was the thing that she did for the majority of her career until her retirement yeah th this age group too it's one of the challenges of teaching this age group is that you know we've lost more than we've lost quite a few people along the way because mm. of the age you know so that's another one of the challenges of these groups but you know another good thing is that they tend to forget stuff so you can teach the same lesson over and over again <laughs> they, they, they really don't mind repeating stuff yeah well then it's the same thing as if you say you know that you know our students our undergraduate students recycle every six months and so we can teach the same thing over oh, and over yeah, again and yeah, i yeah. and i always say to my students who take my second year classes um the contents may change but the jokes remain the same <laughs> so if the if you can reteach the same thing i mean it, it's all about competence isn't it so maybe they got it 70 percent the first time they'll get it 90 percent the second time maybe yeah well, as, as, as a japanese learner or as a person that struggles to learn Japanese. I love repetition. I mm. love studying the same thing again and again. Yeah. Well, it's one of the things with having kids, you, I, I kind of got to reset my own Japanese learning when they went to school. Mm. Because, you know, you start looking at their textbooks, you're like, Oh, I can understand that. And my wife's like, Yeah, this is for four year olds. <laughs> yeah, that's about my level, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so going forward, I mean, uh, if this is something that is, you're mostly you're, you're kind of encouraging from the outside um you know trying to get them connected and uh you know remaining connected with the course do you have any future plans for any research in this area or mainly did you receive any questions about your research at the Fukuoka JALT that kind of enthused you to look at this area in a different way yeah it's funny because th there's not a lot of interest in this area mm, you know yeah. lifelong learning it's really a, it's a very very minor area yeah i don't know chris i mean uh i've done a few studies with them i just don't know where else to go with it do you do you have any ideas well beyond self-determination theory I, I think you it could be i mean engagement is one route i mean you, one of the things that drew me to your presentation was that you had you kind of, and you've, you've spoken about it a little bit in this interview, but you kind of mapped it out visually, you know, moving from the era of the fax machine to mm -hmm. the phone, to the smartphone, COVID hits, then you had Zoom and Line um, up on the board as a, mm. as a timeline. Mm. And so I think engagement is the, is the area that I would be most interested in just as a language teacher anyway, because we don't know if in the future we're going to be put into this situation where we have to reconnect with our students without seeing them face to face. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I much prefer to teach in classrooms. It's kind of the way, you know, if you can make eye contact with people, you know, if they're listening, if they're confused, if they're sleeping, mm. um, and it's very, very difficult to do just online. But if we have to go to some hybrid in the future, 
then learning about different ways that different people engage with these kind of technologies and which ones do engage because i think just the video and the audio is not enough um there are all other things all of the uh, programs we've we've spoken to uh, Todd Bukins before about these hybrid courses using all of the facilities in things like Google Classrooms, um, Microsoft Teams, Office 365, that putting all those things together, you can stay connected with students. It's not as good as if you're 100% in the classroom, but there's a, certainly a lot out there that we can educate ourselves on that would improve engagement. It's mm. but it, But it is all about that kind of technological competency. Yeah, I, you know, if I have to teach, what do you call it, hybrid? If I have to teach hybrid, I'll, I'll teach it. I'll just make the most of whatever I'm giving. I would prefer mm. to be face-to-face -face or 100% online. They're my preferences. But I think what transcends the platform, no matter what it is, is building the relationships between the students. So, you know, one of the most influential things I read when I first came into linguistics was that famous quote by Stevic. You know, Stevic, Earl Stevic? Earl Stevic, yeah. Yeah, what did he say? He said something like, it, it, well, I don't remember the exact wording, but it, um, it doesn't matter what's going on in the classroom. Uh, it, all that matters is what's going on between the students or something. I can't remember how he worded it, but something to affect is something to the effect that you've got to get the classroom relationships right. Yep. Once they're right, then you can start teaching. I think it was Earl Stavik. And, and, and if I'm wrong, I'll have to check in with my former research partner, but uh, that who said, uh, teach, then test, then get out the way. And when, as you say, people are doing it for a hobby and not for credit, then you do get to do the first bit and the last bit without worrying about the middle bit you can teach and then you can get out of the way and let them make their own community let them set their own course right facilitator right yeah well thank you very much we have been speaking today with Stephen Payden who is an assistant professor at Rikyo University and the paper we've been speaking about is keeping the aged engaged a quantitative study of lifelong learning Thank you so much for your time today, Stephen. And Thanks, I hope we have the chance to meet and talk again in the future. Yeah, but it seems we've got a lot in common. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.